I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm so excited to be here with Liz Lenz. She's been published in the New York Times, BuzzFeed, Washington Post, The Guardian, Marie Claire, lots more. Her book, Belabored, Tales of Myth, Medicine, and Motherhood is forthcoming, but right now she's here to talk to me about Godland. Yes. Hello. Let's talk about religion. Yay! (laughs) I do feel odd coming at this as a Jewish lady who's never lived further west than Philadelphia. (laughs) So you really do have to be a guide. Sure. Yeah. One of my hopes for the book was that that it would be open enough that everybody could find a space in there. You know what I mean? That if it was for some, perhaps it would be a guide. For others, perhaps it would be a mirror and a Mm -hmm. challenge. But I didn't want it to be, you know, like a quote unquote religious book for religious people. I wanted it to be a way of saying like, look, religion in America is a big deal and we all need to talk about it and how it's impacting where we are right now. Just give me a brief overview of how you got started writing this this book. book. Okay, the short version is, (laughs) yeah, we'll keep it real short. So back in, uh, towards the end of 2015, I had tried to start a church with my now ex-husband. You see where this is going? (laughs) And spoiler, it ends badly. And so it had shut down. And I was noticing that lots of churches in the Midwest were shutting down. And I pitched a magazine called Pacific Standard. Have you heard of it? I have. They do excellent work. (laughs) So they, I pitched them this piece because the 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 2016 caucuses were coming 
And I said, I think religion in middle America is changing. I want to write about it. And so I did. And I wrote this article that did really well. And Indiana University Press contacted me and said, this should be a book. Mm -hmm. And we went back and forth and back and forth. But that summer of the back and forth was the summer of 2016. What a... What a summer. What a summer. What a great time for everyone. Yeah. And I I signed the book contract on December 19th of 2016. So like, you know, just a little over a month after the election. And so, you know, when the book, had been conceived of and when it came out was very different. And then, of course, while writing the book, I got a divorce. Interestingly enough, I stuck very close to the outline. Hmm. I just end up putting more of myself in there than I initially thought I would have. Which I which I loved. I loved every bit well, of that. Well, nobody wants a book on religion without a little bit of, you know, a little bit of like personal crisis. So I'm so intimidated by you partly because oh, no. no stop. <laughs> um you were raised in Texas. You were homeschooled. Yes. We were Duggar before Duggar was cool. <laughs> we were like we're like hipster Duggar. So that's, that's lovely. Thank and you. We're very proud of it. You grew up though in in a church that you make very clear in the book it's it's a patriarchal religion. Yeah. There is not a lot of room for people who aren't cisgendered. How did you if you were absorbing these messages for so many years, how did you come to the realization that you, as a woman, deserve to be heard? That's so funny. I think that if, you know, we're all, we all come into this world with our own skills and abilities. And one of my skills is never being able to shut up. (laughs) It's a real gift from the Lord. Um, So I I think that I have always had an inability to work well within that space. And for so long, I thought it was my fault because that was the message that, oh, well, you can't fit here because you're not trying hard enough and you are not praying hard enough. You're you're too loud. Yeah, you're too literally pastors, you know, Sunday school people saying, you're too loud, you're too loud. If you have a problem, it's your fault. And at some point, you know, uh, when I went to college, I I felt done. You know, I mm-hmm. just was so exhausted and didn't want to be there anymore. But then I got married and then I found myself right back into that space again. And at some point, it wasn't that I felt that I deserved to be heard. I was just tired of always being the problem. There was a kind of a moment where I was like, what if I'm not the problem? What if I'm fine exactly how I am? Yeah. <laughs> and this is the problem. And interestingly enough, that process of realization happened within kind of like these one-on-one counseling sessions that I was doing at a shelter for women who'd been abused. And they, oh. they provided counseling sessions and stuff, and I'd volunteered there. And so they were like, oh, and while you volunteer, you could just have these sessions. But it right. was like a faith-based Christian organization that also gave me a way out. So it's not all one or the other. Huh. Yeah. And and so you moved with your then husband yeah. to um, Iowa. Yes. From Minnesota to Iowa. Very different cultures of white people. <laughs> not even a Starbucks. Well, when we moved to Cedar Rapids, <laughs> it was over 14 years ago. And so they have plenty of them oh, now. Good. Oh, I few. mean, we so have so many. I have the app on my phone. But they uh, there was Target and the Barnes & Noble proudly brewed. 
Starbucks right. coffee. And, but there was like not a freestanding Starbucks. And so that was like, it's not that I love Starbucks. It's just <laughs> that it's like a marker of civilization. Right. You know, and I remember when we were looking around for apartments, I was like, even places in Wisconsin have a freestanding <laughs> Starbucks. I was, I'm a monster. <laughs> but you're, but you're still in Iowa and you're happy. I am so happy. Spoiler alert. Another spoiler. S- a, another spoiler alert. I'm still in Iowa, and I'm very happy I've found people and places and a home. You tweeted very recently that you used to be called a heretic. Yeah. And now the church that you belong to lets you lead Bible studies. Yes. So last week, my pastor emailed me, and she said, would you lead a Bible study based on your book? And I was like, why? Um, I don't know. What do we get? Like, it just, it felt like, you know, like in college when professors teach their own books, right. you know, where you're just like, and then you're in the class and you're like, you're a jerk. Uh, no offense to any professors out there who teach their own books, but you're probably a jerk. <laughs> right? Because like, how Dr- can you- Bring the truth to us. Just bring it. Preach it. Um, So she, I was like, why? And she's like, well, you don't have to be about, but like, it would be interesting to hear your thoughts and insights. And I was reading that email and it was just a week and a half ago and I started crying because I cannot think of a religious institution I've been a part of where the leader of it looked at me and said, I am interested in your thoughts and insights. Yeah. And and you, you describe so many different points in your book when you've asked to speak to a pastor or you've asked someone to address your concerns in some way. Yeah. And the worst one was when the pastor then replied only to your husband. Yeah, that was very recently. There's a church in uh, Cedar Rapids, which we had tried to go to post our other church falling apart. And there's so many wonderful people who go there. And I live in this small town. It's, I mean, they don't like being called a small town. There's 150,000 people there. Make of it what you wish. <laughs> I I could go into a coffee shop and know everybody in the space, right? So yeah, so we'd been going there and it was nice, but you know, there was there were sermons and things that were being said that I had a big problem with. And if I was going to exist in this space, there's also another thing you talked about, like knowing when you deserve to be heard. I right. was having this weird career trajectory where I had not been successful for so long. And then <laughs> no. and then I was like, then I was starting to get listened to and respected yeah, and yeah. getting feedback. Meanwhile, in this other part of my life, yeah. it was still staying the same. And so it was kind of like, wait, if all these other people want to listen to it, I say, why don't you not that you know I'm so great but like can't we just talk and so yes there had been a sermon preached about divorce actually and we were still together at the time but my older sister had just gone through a divorce and you know I I didn't like what they were saying about it and so I sent an email and I said let's talk and they said yeah but only if your husband's present and I was just like I don't no. That's a very much like a... Uh, well, it's the Billy Graham rule that right. we see in the news right, right now. It's everywhere. It's not an antiquated idea. It's one that is still affecting our politics and our policies. Yeah. Mike Pence. Mike Pence. Mike Pence. Pence. And so, so much of this book is about Trump. I feel like I've had a lot of novelists on the show, <laughs> and they're like, well, this is a, the only way I could process the news. Yeah. By, like, talking around it or near it. Uh And you went in. (laughs) I went balls to the wall (laughs) into it. I cried. I drank a lot of whiskey. 
I ran on rural roads. I talked about Trump. Um, here's the thing. I'm not good at talking around things. <laughs> I think that again, like, okay, let's just do it. Let's just go there and let's just figure it out or not figure it out. I don't think the book has a lot of easy answers. But, no. Um, there was a moment while reporting out the book where so many of the moments of personal breaking had corresponded with like scandals <laughs> with the White House mm-hmm. that I was I was joking with a friend and I was like I just like it's it's too much you know what I mean it's just too much synchronicity between yeah. the two events to where that I can't put it all in but I also think it's important to talk about how the personal is political yeah that these like big these big ideas of politics and impeachment or, you know, immigration. They're not just out there things. They affect people. And they were affecting me to the point where it ruined my life. The only way I know how to be on the page is completely authentic. And so that's what I just put it all down there. And what happened? Again, this is not I don't think you're going to answer this question in a sentence, but yeah. I don't <laughs> Lean answer in. any question. In a <laughs> what happened to the morality of the Christianity you aspire to or that, you know, so many of our friends aspire to? Yeah. How did it get so twisted? Excellent question. It's been happening for a long time that Christianity has become so twisted up in our concept of nationalism that what we practice has little to do with actual theology and more to do with ideas of belonging and morality and moral capital. And I mean that in a very specific sense where you, especially in middle America, I mean, you can be wealthy, but wealth is not a marker of moral capital. Sure. Right? Your your moral capital is, you know, determined by, well, how you look, how do you fit in the space, you mm-hmm. know? Do you do you go to the football games? Right. Do you, you know, which team do you support? Which church do you go to on Sunday? And you don't even have to go every Sunday. You can just say, you know, <laughs> this is the we sometimes go. Um, which, you know, baseball team your kid plays. So there, there are these markers of who is correct and who is incorrect in a space. And so religion is one of those markers. Right. It helps you self-identify in your space. And that has n- absolutely nothing to do with theology. That has everything to do with the way we practice Americanism and our nationalism. And it's really toxic. I mean, it started back, you know, during the Cold War when it was Christianity was our way of differentiating ourselves from the communists. And you saw it in like Billy Graham's rhetoric. You saw it in the rhetoric from the presidents. We are a Christian nation. And that, I think that's probably when our ideas of quote unquote Christianity got twisted up with nationalism. So I think Right now we're having all these debates uh, about the border, for example. Right. And people are saying, oh, well, you know, if you love Jesus, you wouldn't put the babies in the cages. And other people are like, well, I love Jesus and I'm going to put a baby in a cage. And and they're just like throwing Bible verses back and forth. And it's funny to me because I what it's about, it's not about theology. It's about culturally identifiable markers of, right. you know, self-identity. So Throwing up around Bible verses isn't going to help us win this rhetorical war. We need to recognize that 
this type of Christianity is not theologically based. It's culturally based. And that's why it's so white. And so you mention in your book that you have a Muslim friend who takes part in her community and interacts with everyone and has a lovely time. And then she reads Facebook. Yeah. Polly was so great to be able to talk to me. I'd known her through our kids' school and we got, I just, you know, her kids were in class with my kids and they're so lovely. And when the election happened, I think we both identified each other in that space Mm. as somebody who's experiencing the same feelings of loss because I don't live in a liberal bubble, you know. Right. I don't actually think those exist, honestly, but, you know, it's it might not be safe in the at school pickup to just openly weep about the election. Right. And we had identified and we had a lot of coffee and together and she shared her story. But yeah, her her story was is about how she had felt okay, you know, in America and that this is her community and the Muslim community in Cedar Rapids has this huge, beautiful history. It has, right. um, you know, the the oldest mosque, I think freestanding mosque in America is mm. right there in Cedar Rapids. Like, right. The Muslim community is a historical part of our community. And she said she, she felt like it was never a problem until after the election. And she would, you know, she's like, I opened my home, her husband. Well, I don't want to identify what her husband doesn't want to get people in trouble (laughs) but like they you know they're so part of this community and and she'll go on facebook and see people who she loves saying these hateful things and you know just her feeling is that's not that's not about other people that's about me your neighbor right it must be so hard to reconcile the idea like the the people on facebook are raging against a concept of of a people rather than the the flesh and blood people they know yes there's this idea that exists in in all communities but i think it it feels especially acute in smaller communities where we don't like we don't let's say immigrants we don't like immigrants except our immigrants are right. okay right right so it's like then you get into these conversations where you say hey that's me that that person that you're screaming about yelling about that is me and they'll be like oh no 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 you're fine right. it's just those other people right. we don't like and you cannot do that you cannot make that separation and right. i think that's the conversation more more and more people are having, you know, especially women are saying like, hey, when you when you say that about that sexual assault survivor, you're saying that about me, you know, it's personal. The political is personal. Yeah. So how did you find more liberal thinking Christian people to be around? I, mean, I know a lot of it is the Internet. You cover that <laughs> yeah. extensively. I think perhaps a lot of your listeners will know the beautiful human, Nicole Cliff. She is a beautiful human. She is a beautiful human. And I was going through a real big crisis of faith. And when she had her conversion experience, Mm. and I sent her an email and I said, congratulations, but literally why? Right, right, right. (laughs) Which is a really supportive thing to say, I think. And she was so great, and she and she was like, "There's a lot of people who have been saying the same thing to me, who are should be on the same boat." So she right. created this email thread for all of us to talk and share. And I had also gone to like this really liberal Lutheran school, right. and I had gone being told that when I went to college, all the 
liberal professors were to doctrinate me. And I was so <laughs> excited to be indoctrinated. I was like, please put all your liberal thoughts in my head. And I found the experience to be quite the opposite. Instead, they would be they were very accepting and understanding of all ideas. Huh. Well, interesting how that hmm. worked out. And I was like, no, you're supposed to convert me to atheism. <laughs> and they're like, well, atheism seems fine, but also, you know, I think what it is is I had grown up in this space that controls the messages about what is a good Christian and what is not a good right. Christian. But the reality is that the history of faith is so complex and it involves so many different types of people like radical nuns, like mm -hmm. fighting for communism yeah. down in South America, you know, Dorothy Day, like being socialist everywhere. She was a single <laughs> mom, you know, and and that there's all these like beautiful religious traditions that I think we forget about because what dominates the conversation is this white evangelical idea of who's in and who's out. And that is that's just not that's faith in this moment but you know like look we've had the 30 years war you know we had the reformation you right. know we had like it's there's there's bigger stuff going on and i i think we would all do better to recognize that i have a friend who is finishing up her phd from jts the jewish theological seminary uh -huh. she's my best friend from college and you know i would go to her and i would say well I was raised thinking this and she'd be like, oh, well, here's, you know, 50 scholars from like the dawn of time who have like argued <laughs> different with that ideas. What's know? an example? Like what's one of the things that you were raised with? <laughs> well, a lot of it is about like the inerrancy. I'm using air quotes. People can't see that. The inerrancy <laughs> of the biblical text, which is, you know, the idea right. is like the Bible is the living word of God, right. and it is not wrong, and it will never be wrong. And if you say it's wrong, then you're going to hell. And so, so I would say things to her like, okay, the book of Ruth, I was told that literally happened. <laughs> and right. she would say, like, actually, the way it's written is it's written like a fairy tale. Like in the original language, it's written with these like once upon a time tropes. Mm. And the language is so like coded in these ideas of mythology. I'm getting, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think like the husbands are named like sickness and death, actually. Like, oh. so, you know, it's like really metaphorical in this way. And so she would say, so actually it's read more like a fairy tale and I would just be like I'm sorry my head has just exploded <laughs> so I'm gonna scoop my brains up put them back in my head there there was a lot of that going on she gave me this great book called Dangerous Sisters of the Hebrew Bible oh, I don't know it and no it's I mean it's an academic text but it's very readable but it talks about like the literary tropes of women and and space that kind of like dissonant space it's just like so beautiful and interesting, and I love it. And and then in researching this book, you you go back to the the further side of the spectrum. Like you track down sources who ninety seven year old woman who you said was she's a hundred now. She just had her one hundredth birthday yesterday. That's so lovely, and she was sitting like a queen. She said. is still a queen. Happy <laughs> birthday, Evelyn! And I love all the details that you use in the book to 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 signify where we are in the country. Things I wasn't entirely familiar with, like pink carpet in the bathroom comes up a couple of times. And it's like, okay, I see that. Yeah. And lazy boys. And yes. I had to ask you, because you always, you describe the food 
so beautifully. And I love sounds, to eat. It sounds amazing. <laughs> but a couple of times in the book, you mentioned special K bars. And yes. I was like, oh, the thing, the protein bars that I pick up from Dwayne Reed, that doesn't sound. No. What are they, Liz? Um, let me tell you, Maris. I will tell you what a special K bar is. It is a so you start with a cereal. So it's special K because they're often made with special K cereal, but you are not limited to that cereal. Mm-hmm. You can use a Rice Krispie. Okay. You can use a. I wouldn't use a cornflake, but I'm sure you know <laughs> it's been done. Go wild. <laughs> you know those. Those Midwestern moms are crazy. So you take that and you mix it up with like peanut butter and corn syrup and butterscotch. And then you put it in a pan, let it sit. And then you put like a melted chocolate on the top. Mm. And it's like a no-bake cookie bar situation that is a lot of petroleum byproducts in one pan (laughs) But it's so delicious. I actually, like, nothing about Special K bars sound good to me. But every time I eat one, I'm always like, and now I'm going to eat the entire pan. Sounds great to me. But they're a true staple. There's a Casey's – there's something called Casey's Gas Station in Iowa. And they're more like a general store slash Mm -hmm. gas station slash really great pizza place. But they have – they always have, like, Special K bars, like, wrapped up right by the front. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, they're good. And so you you live in these – two different worlds where you know people like Nicole Cliff and um, your college friends and so many women thinking about how we trying to reconcile with with what the church is like now and then you you have this friend who's 100 100 years old yeah and that it's all she's ever known yes Yes, Evelyn's idea of Evelyn is a very radical person in so many ways. I had this argument with somebody recently where they called her a feminist, and I was like, that word doesn't work in Evelyn's world because, in so many ways, she is forward thinking, but she's also, you know, very traditional. She was an original, they called them radio housewives, where they basically just had like housewives have radio shows, they didn't really pay them much. Shocker. Exposure. (laughs) No, no, I think it's just like, (laughs) just do it. And they were like, thank you. We're so bored. But it was, they just like talked recipes and talked about babies on the airwaves for all the other rural wives who would listen in in their days of isolation and caring for children out on farms with, you know, often no cars or if they did have a car, they didn't know how to drive it or just one and their husband would take it. So that was like Evelyn's world. And she believes in justice. She does not like the president. But she's also deeply conservative, and this is her world, and this is her space. And she's she saw the Dust Bowl, right? <laughs> she yeah. saw her church close. She saw it reopen as a combination of two different churches. Mm. She's seen so much, and I think we have these ideas of like regressive old people in the Midwest <laughs> sitting at diners <laughs> drinking coffee. Yeah, like being like, I love the president. Yeah. And that's not the case. You talk about two different worlds. I think it's just one world, just one really complicated, messy yeah. world. Yeah. You know? But it's hard to categorize people like Evelyn because you wouldn't you could say in many ways she's a feminist. But then but that's that's also just like not a word she would use. Right. It's not in her frame of reference. No, no. But she makes great food. 
Evelyn makes such great food. She has all these like beautiful books that are just like recipe books and then memories of raising her children. And yeah, she's kind of a darling in Iowa. She's on the radio all the time on our local (laughs) NPR affiliate and everybody just loves her so much. And yes, when I reached out to her, she said, you better get over here quick. I'm 97. I could die any day. (laughs) And so your church now, how did how did you get there? Well, here's the thing that I think we think about faith in America. We think it's always so restrictive, mm-hmm. you know, and horrible. And yeah, lots of places are, but lots of places aren't. And there had always been this church right in my neighborhood, just a couple of blocks away that I had gone to for, you know, baptisms of friends, babies. I have a lot of friends who go to that church and they were always like, you should just come here. But they have a gay. A, they have a gay pastor. He just moved, and so they're looking for a new one. But and a female pastor, a female head pastor, and so my ex was like, "I will never go there." Mm. And so, in order to to go there, requ- required a breaking a part of my entire life. Which you know what? I actually think there is a lot of people like that. A lot of women who are in these spaces where they're like, "I would like." be somewhere else but I don't know if I can because just small moves like that might make the tenuous relationship of everything that you're holding together just spin out of control but yes so I I, at some point I said you know what I don't want to mess around with all these other places I want to go to a place that I know is good and then I went and it has been good and it's lovely and you know I'll say things like I don't know if I believe in hell I don't know if I believe this and they're like (laughs) Cool. We, yeah, right. sure. Yeah, none of us do either. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and so you just kind of take what you want out of it and what you want to give? This sounds like such a California thing to say, but uh, faith is a journey. Sure. Right? And so right now I'm in a space where I it's been a part of my life for so long. I don't want to let it go. I like the liturgy. I've never been to a church with liturgy before, I feel like it gives me kind of a scaffolding Mm. for the exploration of mystery Mm. in my life. And I think we all access mystery in our life. I mean, some do it through literature, some do it through science, uh, some do it every way. And so it gives me that scaffolding for accessing mystery and being part of a community that is designed to do good in my community, fill backpacks for kids, Mm. you know, feed the homeless go and protest. It gives me that kind of space. But, you know, talk to me in three years. I might be balls to the wall, wicked, and we'll see. Sure. I look forward to talking to you in three years. About my how to be a witch book? Yeah. (laughs) Very quickly. Tell me what else you've been reading. Oh, wow. I just read um, Rachel Bud Rowe's book, Savage Appetites. Have you read that? I have. It is so good. So good. I'm haunted by it. It's so, I actually, it's so good I feel offended and angry. (laughs) Also, I feel very personally attacked because I'm a white woman who loves true crime. And so. This is a book about. White women who who love true crime <laughs> and sometimes get involved in it in messy ways. And so I I just thought it was just so smart and so well written. Um, I also have, uh, I started on the plane right now, uh, Casey Sepp's book, Furious yes. Hours, which I hadn't never, I hadn't had the chance to read yet. And I twice in a row read uh, K.S.A. Lehman's uh, yes. Heavy because it is 
gorgeous. Yes. And Carmen Machado's book in the dream house. In the dream house. Ooh. I killed me. I'm still dead. What she does with nonfiction is so incredible. You talk about like fairy tale tropes. Yes. I just like as a writer of nonfiction, I mean, of course, it's a beautiful, amazing story and lofty ideas, but like the craft. The craft of it is. The craft of it is so, so beautiful and amazing that. These are, and I think all of all the books I mentioned do things with nonfiction that are so beautiful and yeah. cool and interesting. I love it. It's a good genre. It sure is. Thank you so much for being here, Liz. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a dream. <laughs> it is a dream. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.